grateful for your attendance here this morning. It's good to see some visitors. It's good to see some back from vacation as summer is winding down and we're starting to return to a state of normalcy here. And I hope the time we spend here together will be uplifting and strengthening and beneficial for all of us. I have a thank you note that Addie David handed me before services and wanted me to read to you all. It says, Dear Church family, I just want to say thank you for all of the support and encouragement I've been receiving, not only this summer, but my whole life. Being able to bring the Word of God to our fellow Christians in Hawaii was an experience I will cherish forever. There are pictures of the camp on their Facebook page, Aloha Christian Camp. I want to ask you to please remember my family and I as we travel to Arkansas this week, as well as the other kids going back to school and college. Thank you again for all that y'all have done for me, Addie. That's a great transition to what we want to talk about this morning. Addie's going back to college along with those other uh, kids her age. They'll be heading back there soon to their respective destinations. As hard as it is to believe, I mentioned people coming back from their vacation. Summer is, is almost over. We're having that back-to-school party at our house this coming Saturday. Abby goes back to work tomorrow. And I even saw this past week, one of my old professors in Tennessee, his kids actually have already gone back to school. He had pictures of them there on the first day, August 1st. Now, some of you may be looking forward to that. Addie might be looking forward to that, going back to college. I know I certainly enjoyed college a lot more than I did grade school. Those of you who are a little bit younger, if you're like me, going back to grade school, you are not looking forward to that at all. I had senioritis from the time I was about seven or eight years old, I think. I hated school. I hated the boring classes. I hated having to do homework when I'd rather be doing something fun. I hated having to take tests. And a lot of us can probably identify with some of those feelings. I think it's safe to say most people don't care for tests. In fact, in our Sunday morning Bible class this morning, I gave the class a sort of pop quiz, one question, and they all failed as I told them. So they probably don't care for tests very much either. But we've probably all taken a fair few tests in our day. I know I have from all the levels of schooling that I went through to the standardized test that you have to take to go on further in some of those levels. And no matter how good you are at taking tests, I think all of us are happy, even if we were successful in them, to be able to put them behind us. There's that feeling of relief once you have that over and done with. And a lot of us are probably thankful that our school days are over for that very reason. It's hard for us to see at the time, but tests, at their best, are not just arbitrary academic exercises in futility. They're designed to help us, to help us learn, to help us grow. And I bring that up this morning because we find those sorts of tests in Scripture. In fact, the Bible portrays God giving us those sorts of tests again and again 
and again, tests that are designed to be beneficial for us. God presented Abraham and Sarah with a wonderful gift in their old age, a son, Isaac. But Genesis chapter 22 verse 1 tells us that God tested Abraham. He told him to go up onto that mountain and to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Now this test was really for Abraham's benefit more than God's. God knew Abraham. God knew Abraham's heart and he knew that he loved God. But God wanted Abraham to know just how far he was willing to go in serving him. And Abraham passed the test. Another good example from the Old Testament is that of Job. God allowed Satan to afflict Job and to put him to the test. Job was the wealthiest man in all of the East. He was blessed with an abundance of possessions, with a happy family. And then all of that was taken from him in an instant to see if he would really continue to serve God. Now, God knew what kind of man Job was. He knew that he was blameless and upright. But at the end of that book, Job comes out with a greater faith, a trust in God's wise rule of the world than he'd ever known before. Job passed his test. Perhaps one of the most vivid tests in the Old Testament is one that God gives to the prophet Jonah. Now, Jonah, you remember, failed his test. Jonah was ordered in, to go and to preach to the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, Israel's enemies, to repent or they'd be destroyed. But Jonah didn't want them to repent. And so he went in the opposite direction as far as he could, headed for Tarshish in modern-day Spain. And it wasn't until a storm came up and then a great fish swallowed him that, God, or that Jonah finally repented and decided to turn around and to do what God was telling him to do. Jonah failed his test. We read about tests in the New Testament too. Jesus tested Philip on the day that he fed the crowds. John chapter 6, he asked Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed all of these people? And John tells us that he already knew what he was going to do. He asked this to test Philip. On another occasion, after his resurrection, Jesus tested Peter. You remember the seashore? He asked him repeatedly, Simon, do you love me? Do you really love me? What about us? If that was the test given to us this morning, do you love God? Well, all of us would respond to that. Well, of course I do. Absolutely I love God. After all, I wouldn't be here this morning if I didn't love God. But it's pretty easy to just say that and to not probe any deeper, to really put it to the test. But Scripture does probe deeper, and it asks more difficult questions of us. And in that regard, I want us to ask a couple of questions of ourselves this morning. We might think of this as a sort of pop quiz, I guess. We'll look at a couple of passages, and the first one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. It was read to us a few moments ago. Now, Paul is writing here to people who claim to love God, and yet when it comes to really putting
examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Do you recall ever reading that verse before? I mean, at least before a few minutes ago this morning. I'm sure we've all read it at some point in our own personal Bible studies or maybe when we've had a, a Bible class on 2 Corinthians and we were just going through verse by verse. But I think it's probably one that doesn't make a big impression on us. It's not one that most of us had probably ever thought twice about. But look at what Paul's saying. Examine yourself. Give yourselves a test. Are you in the faith? And then he tells us how to determine that. If Jesus Christ lives in you, if he determines the way that you think and the way that you speak and the way that you act, well, then the answer is yes, you are in the faith. But if your deeds don't demonstrate that Jesus lives in you, if your thoughts and if your words and if your actions don't revolve around that, if he's not living in you, then no matter how much you claim to love God, you're not passing the test. The answer is no. You failed the test. I can't talk over that. <laughs> That's all right. I, I, believe, I believe that was the voice of uh, Paul there reading to us, wasn't it? It's okay. It happens. <laughs> I just didn't want to try to compete with it because I was about to laugh at it too. <laughs> the point is, you failed the test if you can't say that Christ is living in you. And I don't want to fail that test. I don't want to come to judgment day and to be like those that Jesus speaks of. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I don't want to come to the end and discover only then that I'm not in the faith. Now that's bad enough, but if you were to listen to the next couple of verses, it says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles? And what will he say? I never knew you. That is a disturbing passage. On judgment day, some professing Christians will hear from Jesus, I never knew you. Now, how's that possible? Doesn't God know everyone? Well, yes. But we're not speaking here of literally knowing who you are. Remember, in Scripture, sometimes the idea of knowing someone is to be intimate with them, to be close with them, to have a relationship with them. And so what Jesus is saying here is, you never came to me. We were never close. We've never been in a relationship. I don't want to hear that, and I expect you don't either. 
So what must we do to make sure that we are in the faith? To make sure we don't ever hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, thankfully, the Bible's pretty clear about that. The prophet Isaiah, in fact, says in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 8 that God will make the holiness, the way of holiness, the path of salvation so clear that even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. So God has made this way of salvation plain, clear, easy for us to follow. So what does scripture say about that way of salvation, about becoming a Christian? To begin with, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Jesus? You do. Well, you're in the faith then, right? No. No, there's more to it than that. James tells us in discussing this idea of faith in James chapter 2 that even the demons believe and they shudder. They believe intellectually. They know that there is a God, but they're certainly not in the faith. They're lost and they know it. That's the reason, in fact, that they shudder. They tremble because of that fear. So there's more to faith than simply believing in Jesus, simply acknowledging his existence. And that's the point that Paul's making here when he talks about Jesus Christ living in us. If we believe in Jesus, secondly, we'll then make him the Lord and the master of all of our lives. That's essentially what we refer to as repentance. That is, I was walking in my own direction and now I'm turning and I'm walking with God. I've committed my life to him. That turning or that returning to the obedience that someone is due to God, that's, that's the idea at the heart of repentance. It's a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of will in regard to sin. Now I'm going to go and I'm going to do what God tells me to do. We don't hear too much about repentance these days, it seems. Most people who profess to be Christians want to take advantage of what the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. That is, we want God to just pour it out onto us without any sort of responsibility on our part. We don't want that costly grace that God really offers in Scripture. And the result of this is that there are lots of people who were immoral before they came to Christ. And now they're every bit as immoral afterwards. They were dishonest before they professed to believe in Jesus, and now they are every bit as dishonest after they professed to come to him. They were greedy before they came to Christ, and now even though they call themselves Christians, they still are greedy. If you can't point to some definite changes that God has made and is making in your life, you're failing this test. True faith always results in some definite change, sometimes radical changes in our lives. And those changes occur because we've repented, because we've turned from going our own way, and now we're walking with God. Scripture also teaches that if we have faith, we will express that faith in obedience to God's commandments. 
There's no such thing from the standpoint of Scripture as a disobedient faith. As Jesus puts it, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 15. And John himself expands on that in his first letter. This is the love of God to obey his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, verse 3. One way we express our faith in obedience to his commandments is through the waters of baptism. And when we think about it that way, those old debates about whether or not baptism is essential to our salvation really are misguided. Because the Lord has commanded it. And if I have faith in him, then I'll be immersed into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what he's told me to do. And an obedient faith, a submissive faith, will respond to that. All we have to do is decide whether or not we're going to obey God. Baptism is a simple act in and of itself. It's only a little bit of water. It's only a few words that are spoken. It's only getting wet. But baptism has meaning and significance because of what lies behind it. The commandment of the Lord Jesus. And not only his commandment, but his death and his burial and his resurrection. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he arose from the grave victorious over death. Paul connects that to our baptism in Romans chapter 6. In baptism, we die with him, we're buried with him, and we're raised to walk with him in newness of life. That faith that we possess will also be a faith that we proclaim. This is something that if you were here last Sunday evening, we talked about the importance of this word, proclaim. And when we proclaim our faith in Jesus, it won't just be from a confession that we make one time only. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It will be the witness, the living testimony of our lives. I'll confess Jesus with my words, but I'll confess Jesus in the workplace. I'll confess Jesus in the home. I confess him not just with my lips, you see. I will confess him with my lifestyle. Everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I do will be a living confession to my faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when we put it like that, have we passed the test? Are you in the faith? Do you not merely believe in Jesus, but have you made him the Lord and master of your life? Have you turned from that way of life that is self-involved to walking with him have you been obedient to all of his commandments do you proclaim him in your very lifestyle let's briefly note a different test this morning from first corinthians chapter 11 so paul is writing to this very same audience we often read chapter 11 in the context of the Lord's Supper, and indeed that is what it's focused upon here. Paul's writing to correct some abuses in the church over the Lord's Supper. This is a church with a lot of 
problems. And so we sometimes read particularly the institution narrative, that is the story of what Jesus did at the Last Supper. And then we just sort of stop at verse number 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. But I want us to begin reading in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. The early Christians met together regularly in a time of communion. They assembled together week by week on the first day of the week, and a large part of the reason for that assembly was to eat the Lord's Supper together. Well, this is important. This is what distinguishes our Sunday assemblies from other times of worship. That's why this is significant. But notice what Paul says. Remember this idea of testing. He says, every time you gather around the Lord's table, you ought to look inside yourself. You ought to examine yourself. And the question you're putting to yourself is, am I discerning the Lord's body? Now, in context, that probably refers to two things. First of all, am I thinking about Jesus hanging on the cross? Am I thinking about the nails that were driven into him there? Am I thinking about his body hanging there on the tree? Am I thinking about his pain and his suffering on my behalf? That is that he died for me. We sang that song before the Lord's Supper this morning. He could have called 10,000 angels. That's all about this memorial aspect of the Lord's Supper. It's extremely significant. But there's a second part of this body of Christ that we discern. Paul often uses that term body of Christ to refer to the church. And in fact, here in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, that's probably even more what's in view because the problem here at the Lord's Supper is that they're using it to draw divisions in the church. So he wants them to remember that this is something that should unite the body, not be a source of division. You see, the point is, the only way that the church can ever do the job that God has given it in the world is for us to recognize its value, its place in God's plan, to do its God-given job. Do we recognize that significance of the church? Do we value it as the body of Christ? Are we faithful to it? Do we love our brothers and our sisters the way that we ought? Or are there factions? Are we divisive the way they were in Corinth? Do we give our time and our talent and our energy to the church? Do we make it a priority in our lives the way that we ought? The question is, are you recognizing the body of Christ in both those senses? Not only what Jesus has done for you, but the importance of his hands and feet here in the world. And if the answer is yes, then go ahead, eat the bread, drink the cup. But if the answer is no, Paul says, 
you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. That's why you're spiritually sick. Some of you have even died, he says. But I want you to notice finally how Paul ends this passage about examining ourselves. He says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. He says, if we tested ourselves, if we examined ourselves, if we judged ourselves, then we wouldn't be in any danger of judgment day. The final exam is coming. But Paul says, if you've been taking the pop quizzes all along, if you've been passing those, then you don't have anything to worry about the final. You're ready for it. You're prepared. So the question for us this morning is, are we ready for the final exam? It's coming for us whether we're ready or not. How do we measure up? Are you in the faith? If not, I urge you to take those steps we talked about this morning. To place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. To turn to walk with God in repentance. To be buried with him in the waters of baptism. Have your sins washed away and then go on to live that life of faith. Proclaiming him in your very actions. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but you've been failing one of these tests. You haven't proclaimed in the way that you ought. Maybe you haven't recognized the body of Christ, the church, the way that you ought. Whoever you are and whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way to be ready for that final exam, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.